Okay, uh, we'll start this evening by reading uh, a chunk from 1 Chronicles, uh, as it says on the schedule for tonight, 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 to 36. And then we won't sing in the presence of your people, because I can't make the um, display it. But it would be appropriate to sing um, a song for Holy Week, so we'll do that instead. But first, first here's... Um, a song of praise that 1 Chronicles 16 links with the occasion when David uh, brought the covenant chest, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, up to Jerusalem and established it there. And thereby, well in a kind of way, brought the story of um, the fulfilment of God's promises to another stage of completion. As this... Um, object which stands for the covenant relationship between God and his people uh, reaches the um, place where Israel is going to worship God from then onwards. So 1 Chronicles chapter 16 verse, beginning of verse 8. See what um, it says to you. Give thanks to Yahweh, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek Yahweh rejoice. Seek Yahweh and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wonderful works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered, O offspring of his servant Israel, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account and strangers in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to, to, kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Sing to Yahweh all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Honour and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to Yahweh families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship Yahweh in holy splendour. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, Yahweh is king. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before Yahweh, for he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather and rescue us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. 
Blessed be Yahweh the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, but they said it with more conviction. <laughs> then all the people said, Amen. and praised Yahweh. What strikes you about that praise? The, um, in those verses where it says, say also, save us, O God of our salvation, the Hebrew for, for save us is Hosanna. Well, more, slightly more technically, it's Hoshienu. Hosanna. Where have you heard that word lately? I mean, if you were lucky, you heard it yesterday. Um, because that's what the crowd are declaring when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at the beginning of the last week of his life, when they acknowledge him um, as the one who is going to restore them, uh, to rescue them from the authority of the Romans, when they're in a situation that's not so different from the situation of people um, in the days in which Chronicles was written, where they're under the authority of the Persians, but it all comes to the same thing. I mean, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, British, whatever it is, Americans, whatever it is, it comes to the same thing. People cry out, Hosanna. It's, uh, it's not a, that, that cry, Hosanna, isn't a thing like praise the Lord, which it often sounds like. It's a prayer. It's, uh, it's save us. And so uh, at the end of that praise here in 1 Corinthians 16 is that expression that the crowds are using when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather and rescue us from among the nations. Yeah. Anything else? Strike anybody. Mm -hmm. It starts off there's that particular part where it talks about Israel and Abraham, you know, and it's sort of that, it's very clear, but then it gets into, when you get dropped out of 23, 24, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people, and there is that call within that, it's not just a particular thing that is held within a specific nation, but it is something for the entire world, right. covenant right. to bless the world. Right, right, yeah. And the particularity of what God did in Israel isn't just designed for Israel to enjoy, but is designed to be the means whereby God will speak to the world, that the world will come to acknowledge, the nations will come to acknowledge Yahweh, because they look at what God has done for Israel and they say, we want to share in that. There's a beautiful picture at the end of, um, in Zechariah, a picture of um, ten Gentiles grabbing hold of the coat of a Jew saying, can we come with you because we've heard that God is with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's such a right thing to say or proclaim that uh, ascribe to the Lord uh, all glory and do his name. When we think of our God as the creator, when we believe our God as a creator, it's such a natural thing to proclaim. You know, and and you know, we're all uh, part of this creation. 
It's the com and the combination of it's God as the creator, but then it's the particularity of God being involved in Israel in that story that leads up to Jesus, and it's um, the combination of those is very powerful. It wouldn't be any use. Well, it wouldn't be any use, but it would be incomplete if you were simply talking about what God did um, in those acts, that act of redemption through Israel and Jesus in particular, without the creation. But neither would it be complete to talk about the creation, about God being the creator, without the particularity of the way in which God went about redeeming the world um, through what God did in Israel and in Jesus. The combination of those is very uh, powerful, important. Mm -hmm. I'm really drawn in with verse 31. You know, it sounds like a threat to all of the other nations saying, your kings are not really kings, you know. Yahweh is the king. Mm. So it sounds like a threat to all mm. other nations with kings saying, yeah. through king is not your king. Yeah. Though when you think about what being king means in biblical thinking, it's less of a threat. Um, the job of the king is to ensure that the people are looked after and protected, um, that the widows and the orphans are cared for, um, that oppressors are not allowed to get away with things. Um, and so if you've got a good king, then it's really good news that Yahweh is your king. If, if Yahweh is going to be king, you're going to be okay. It is Yahweh exercising authority, but the way in which Yahweh exercises authority as king is in mercy and faithfulness and protection and so on. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that the warrant for why the people should praise is because it's rooted in the deeds of Yahweh yeah. as are remembered by the chronicler. Right. And so the way that history is told is Right. Right, the way you tell the story. That, somebody said at the beginning, oh, it's all full of praise. But note the nature of that praise is that it's, um, it's, a lot of it is declarations of what God has done. It's telling that praise tells a story of what God has done. It's, um, it, it's, it's not so much, oh Lord, we love you, we're very enthusiastic about you. That's not praise. Praise is, Lord, you did this, Lord, you did that, Lord, you did that. Okay, let's sing about um, the cross. Uh, the, the last two lines, let's see. Near the cross I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach the golden shore. Um, something about the river, isn't it? Anybody? Oh, just beyond the, uh, just beyond the, let's say, let's make it just beyond the river, unless somebody quickly obtains it 
through their Googling. Just beyond the river. Uh, so it's um, till I reach the golden shore, just beyond the river. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream. Flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star sheds its beams around me. Near the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, Bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows on me. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach the golden shore, just beyond the river. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find Rest beyond the river. Gracious God, we ask that through this holy week you may keep us near the cross and draw us nearer to us to it as Maundy Thursday and Good Friday arrive. Bring home to us the reality of what you did for us in Jesus and give us all the more basis then for rejoicing when we acknowledge that Jesus lives on Resurrection Day. We pray that you'll be with us this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now the test. Uh, as these go round, keep them flat till I tell you you can um, uh, you can turn them over. Pass those back, will you? Pass those around, will you? Pass those back, will you?
Thanks, anybody not got them? Okay, anybody else not got one? Everybody okay? Um, so, I'll, after ten minutes, I'll say, are you done? Um, and if loads of people want more time, we'll give you a bit more time. Uh, if, you, uh, if some people want to have more time um, uh, at the end, then that's fine. What we'll do is I'll collect them up at whatever time I say that's it. And if you want to, have, if you haven't finished and you want to have another go at the end, then you can come and collect your paper and have another go at the end. Are you ready? Okay, turn over, go.
Okay, that's 10 minutes. Uh, who would like more time? Okay, uh, two more minutes, and then if you want more time after that, we can have more time at the end. Okay, uh, check you put your name on the top. Um, and then pass it to the front. As I say, if you haven't finished you want to have another go at the end, you can do. But pass them to the front for now. I think you could then sort them into alphabetical order. So I can find them for anybody yeah, at the yeah, end. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You've got to move? Oh, you got him? Okay. Uh, I, need to do, I need to get you to sign these VCA forms also, so um, I'll pass three, the three copies of these around. Uh, if it gets to the bottom of the sheet, don't start writing on the back. Um, tell me and I'll give you another copy of the sheet. So uh, if the guys at the front would fill it out and then pass it back. Chronicles. Uh, this is page 27 in the uh, syllabus, the course notes. Um, and I call Chronicles here a narrative contextual theology of music in worship. 
I'm going to talk about in a minute about those five words, narrative, contextual, theology, music, worship. More or less in the reverse order. In fact, exactly in the reverse order. Uh, but first, a bit of introduction about Chronicles at the top. Kings, which is the conclusion of that great work, that great work extending from Genesis to Kings, which is one continuous story, like the ten seasons or whatever it was um, of Lost. Kings was written just before the exile and or during the exile, because um, on the usual theory... I guess the most common theory, a first edition of Kings was written not long before the exile and then it was kind of updated once or twice during the exile. Uh, but when you see it in the context, particularly of the exile itself, you can see what was the point about telling the story of Kings in the way in which it, in which it, was, in which it is told. It tells the story of the monarchy, the story that runs through from David and Solomon down to the exile, in such a way as to show what a mess much of the time Israel was making of its life. Uh, and it simply tells the story that way. And in a way, it's, it has something of the nature of praise, as I was describing praise at the beginning just now. That is, in praise, you tell a story. In confessing sin, you tell a story. Both of them are narrative uh, enterprises. And the books of Kings in that connection have been described as an act of praise at the justice of the, uh, of the judgment of God, which in German is one word. Gerichtsdoxologia, uh, Gerhard von Rad called it. An act of praise at the justice of the judgment of God. That is, it's telling the story in such a way as to say, this is how, what happened, this is how we acted, this is how our ancestors acted, how our fathers and mothers acted, how the communities acted over the years, and this is the consequence that followed from it. And by telling the story that way, you are acknowledging that what God has done to you is entirely deserved. It's an act of praise uh, at the justice of the judgment of God. Now Chronicles tells the same story as Genesis to Kings, a story that leads from Adam to the end of the exile and that focuses, as the books of Kings do in particular, on the period of the monarchy, on the period from, from David down to the exile. So it covers the same ground as that earlier version of the story, but obviously does it more briefly. Um, and it also takes the story on a bit further because the very, end of the very end of Chronicles talks about the way in which the Persians came into to be in control um, of what had been the Babylonian Empire um, and make it possible for Judahites and Babylon to go home and rebuild the temple. So it would be logical to infer that Chronicles was written later than Kings, was written after the time when Judahites were free to go back to Jerusalem. And that fits the nature of the story. Um, it was presumably written sometime in the Persian period, or maybe early in the Greek period, but we don't know by whom. The last paragraph of Chronicles, as I pointed out to you last time, overlaps with the beginning of Ezra. Maybe Ezra was written to continue Kings, um, and Chronicles uh, is then an alternative prequel. Now some of that um, uh, explanation of how, how and when Kings came into existence, and how and when Chronicles came into existence, might help a bit with some of the questions that people asked in their postings. Um, why? 
put the books of Chronicles in the Old Testament when we got First and Second Kings that give us the same information, but with more detail? Why might God have inspired two similar but different accounts of history? Um, and uh, you could uh, ask the same question about why are there four Gospels? It would be much simpler if there was only one Gospel. I mean, the courses to follow would be shorter too, wouldn't they, possibly? But certainly you wouldn't have this problem about reconciling the Gospels with one another. Why are there four Gospels? Uh, and the answer is, well, at one level, the answer is um, a decent story deserves telling more than once and de deserves telling in different ways and needs to be told in different ways in order to bring out different truths that can be brought out of the story and needs to be told in different ways for different audiences. So the usual view about the Gospels is that the Gospels uh, are different because each of the four Gospel writers is writing to a different context, a different church with different questions in it and so on. So it can bring out different facets of the significance of the Jesus story for people in different um, contexts. And something similar would be true about Kings and Chronicles. The people in the situation of exile where Jerusalem has just been destroyed and where they need to um, own the nature of the life that their community has lived over the centuries uh, is in one situation. A community that's living after the exile, when they have been um, enabled to go back to Judah and to rebuild the temple, but where nothing is quite as terrific as you thought it was going to be, is in a different sort of situation. So God inspires two different versions of the story told in different contexts, which are appropriate for two different, for two different peoples. But then, um, as, as is the case with the Gospels, uh, evidently the Holy Spirit reckoned it would be quite a good idea if more than one version of the story was there in Scripture. Because it enables you to see the significance uh, of the story in different ways, in different contexts. Uh, the fact that things are like that um, illustrates for you, with regard to the Gospels, but uh, here with regard to uh, Kings and Chronicles, how the point isn't merely the factual story, the facts about the history. The point is the way the story is told and the lessons that are brought out of it, the way in which a story applies to people in a particular context. Um, why, chronicle, why is Chronicles included in the writings when Kings and Samuel aren't? Somebody else asked in their posting. Uh, I presume the answer to that is probably chronological. Um, that is, that the uh, books from Genesis through to Kings were part of... Um, the, the books from Genesis, to King, from Genesis to Deuteronomy are the Torah. The books from Joshua to Kings, as I explained last time, are the former prophets. They're followed by the latter prophets. That was kind of all sorted out. Um, and one of the um, things that holds the writings together is that on the whole, the writings are the uh, latest of the books in the Old Testament. Uh, and so the reason why Chronicles is in the writings and not uh, in the former prophets is that fact that it was written a century or two or three um, after Kings. Five aspects of the, uh, the nature of Chronicles then. Five emphases. First, the emphasis on worship. Uh, worship emerges as one of Chronicles' main themes when you compare Chronicles with the parallel story in Samuel Kings. It's not the only theme in Chronicles. Amongst the other themes in Chronicles are the purity of the people of God and the need for them to be pure, the importance of trusting in God, particularly in context of battle, the importance of obedience to God and living in accordance with the Torah. But worship is one central theme that runs through Chronicles. And it's one of the bases 
for the selection of stories from Samuel Kings that Chronicles includes or leaves out. It likes having the stories about worship. Um, and it's also one of the bases upon which Chronicles decides to add stories, add material that doesn't come in Samuel Kings. Um, like that big excerpt from three different Psalms that we read just at the beginning. That doesn't come in the King's version, the Samuel version uh, of the story of the taking up of the covenant chest to Jerusalem. Chronicles puts it in because it fits with its um, worship theme. And if you ask the question, why, would they, why should they stress worship more than Samuel King's, then I think the answer is likely something like this. That it's part of a stress on God being, on, on God being with the people in the present. In that situation after the exile in the Second Temple period, they're still under the authority of the Persians, or maybe the Greeks, but I think likely the Persians. It isn't much of a life, really. It's, not, it's nowhere near as wonderful as you'd have thought it was going to be when you've read Isaiah and Jeremiah. So is it really true that God is with his people? Is God active with his people in the way that he was before? And the point that Chronicles brings home is that yes, God is indeed present with his people and what, and what, what you need to look at is the reality and the wonder of the way that God is present with his people in worship. Okay, you can't see God doing much in your lives outside of worship. But don't let that make you think that God isn't alive, isn't there, isn't with you at all. Remember what it's like when you're in the presence of God in worship and rejoice in that as a reality of God's presence with you, even if for reasons you can't quite see, God doesn't seem to be involved in life outside. And in that, present, in that stress on God's presence in their worship, Chronicles then provides you with one of the ways in which the writings in that Second Temple period um, enable people to cope with the realities of tough times. Uh, Ecclesiastes has got a different way of coping with tough times. It, it encourages you to look at how tough the times are and to ask questions about why God isn't, God isn't active in the present. Daniel has got another approach to that question about um, the toughness of the times in which it declares, well, the times aren't going to be tough forever if God is going to bring about the fulfilment of his purpose one day. So you need to be people of hope. There are several different ways of handling uh, the toughness of the times in which the people live. And Chronicles, with its reminder of the reality of God's presence within you in worship, is then one of them. Um, here's an interesting question from the postings. Chronicles emphasises the Jerusalem temple system. So how should this affect our worship to God today? Um, and there are two things that um, occur to me. There's the general point of the um, stress on praise, the importance of worship, and the way in which it's given for God's sake. Now we know that when we go to church to worship, the important thing is whether or not it makes us feel good, right? Um, and that's the basis upon which those of you, those of you who are worship leaders uh, lead the worship, isn't it? And you know you've succeeded if people come out afterwards feeling good. That's not Chronicle's attitude. Chronicle's attitude is that worship is given for God's sake. Um, and, and that seems to me to be quite an important lesson that we could learn from it. And then there's a particular verse that strikes me a lot in Chronicles. When David is negotiating 
with Ornan and the Jebusite to buy the uh, piece of land upon which the temple is going to be built. Um, and they have this piece of what might be kind of oriental, um, polite, kind of bargaining, negotiating. Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to Yahweh. Give it to me at its full price. Ornan said to David, Take it. Let my lord the king do what seems good to him. I'm not going to, you know, I don't, it's unseemly setting a price. I just, I leave it to your discretion, you know. Don't give me anything, it'll be okay. Doesn't really mean it, probably, but that's how negotiation goes on. But King David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for Yahweh what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I won't offer worship that costs me nothing. Our worship costs us nothing. If you're going to be offering animals as sacrifices, burnt offerings, then it's going to cost you something. Um, and the notion, it links obviously with that first point about worship that I made, that worship is designed to be something that you give to God that costs you something, is a really challenging one for us when our form of worship doesn't actually require that because we aren't offering sacrifices. So the question is, how is worship something that costs <coughs> us something? Uh, second theme, second emphasis in, um, in Chronicles is the emphasis on, on, on music. Now, uh, Chronicles isn't the only book in the Old Testament that puts uh, an emphasis on worship. Uh, it shares that centrality of the theme of worship, for instance, with Leviticus uh, and with the Psalms. But Leviticus is concerned a lot with sacrifices, with what I've called on the sheet sacrament, with the um, outward expression of giving oneself to God. And the Psalms, the book of Psalms is, re is a resource book of words. Uh, in Chronicles, the Levites are key figures, um, as they are in Leviticus, but the key role of the Levites in Chronicles is as music leaders. Uh, the, book of, the books of Chronicles emphasize prayer and joy and praise. Prayer and joy and praise in life outside as well as in the temple. It's kind of bizarre, you might think, when they're going, they're going out for a battle, so the first thing they do before they actually fight is have a prayer meeting, a praise meeting. Gerhard von Rahn, in his Old Testament theology, asks whether a theology that saw Israel's existence so strongly conditioned by praise could have been very wrong. If they got that central, if that praise-worship um, singing to Yahweh is so central in their lives, they, then they couldn't have been very far wrong, could they? Von Rad asks. Third, a third um, aspect of the nature of Chronicles um, is uh, that um, it's a theological book. Chronicles is concerned with music in relation to God. Um, its theological perspective on worship and on music then needs to be set in the context um, of the way in which other books in the Old Testament and the New Testament talk. Uh, somebody noticed how the call for justice and care for the powerless that's so prominent in the prophets is missing in Chronicles. Why is that? Well, part of the answer is the Chronicles isn't a prophet. Uh, I mean, it's pretty missing in Kings. It's pretty missing in much of the Bible. Um, it's, uh, it's in particular books of the prophets. 
that that call for justice and care for the powerless is prominent. But there clearly is a difference between the attitude in Amos to worship, where Amos or Isaiah says, has God saying, I'm fed up to the teeth of your offerings and your praise festivals and your prayers. Um, whereas uh, Chronicles rejoices, assumes that, God's re God, that God rejoices in that worship. Uh, likewise, uh, 1 Peter, for instance, talks about the offering of the whole of our lives uh, as worship. And as I said already, Leviticus and Psalms are other books that talk about worship. So, so Chronicles is one angle on the theology that appears in the Bible as a whole, with its stress on worship. And it inevitably thinks that in that context in which it writes, the, um, that talk about worship and the emphasis on the importance of worship is something that's appropriate. It would have been inappropriate in Isaiah and Amos's day because people were full of enthusiasm about worship and they needed to be told to be less enthusiastic about worship and more enthusiastic about what they did outside the temple. Uh, the people in the time of Chronicles need the encouragement um, of God being um, present there in their worship. So it's got that, these theological, that theological stress and a stress on God's might and God's justice uh, and God's word and God's grace. Um, with the expected response of trust and obedience and with the assumption that if you are people who live um, in trust and obedience then you will see God's blessing in your life. Um, it would be very happy with the chorus that we used to sing when I was in Sunday school. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Did you sing that in Sunday school? <coughs> yes, okay. Well, Chronicles could agree with that. Um, the, the key to a life that works is trust and obedience. Um, and, and, th and that's um, the answer to a question again that somebody raised in their posting uh, about Manasseh, that you could extend uh, a little bit. Um, Manasseh, uh, some, somebody noticed, uh, I, had re I had described somewhere, I think in the reading about um, the history, as the lowest apostate who ever occupied Judah's throne, which is the way the Kings describes Manasseh. But Chronicles talks about Manasseh turning towards God and humbling himself uh, and building up the city in Jerusalem and so on. Uh, and uh, there's a similar point that you can make about Josiah. It, it, Josiah is the guy who got killed uh, in battle when relatively young, when he was the guy who'd gone in for a great reform which had put right many of the things out of the previous 50 years, but he doesn't live the kind of long life that you'd have thought somebody like that would live. Kings leaves it as a kind of enigma that, um, that Josiah gets killed when he's young. Doesn't attempt to explain it. Um, Chronicles wants to underline the reality of the way in which if you do the right thing, then you find blessing. If you live a life of trust and obedience, then you will find God blessing you. Uh, and so it uh, will look for explanations of how it could have been that Manasseh lived such a long time um, and that Josiah lived only a short time and give you those explanations. That helps to um, bring home the importance of the theological themes that, um, that it sees, it knows are important uh, in its day. So it's a theological book. Fourthly, it's contextual. Um, this um, 
is another way of talking about that, the question I said something about just now. Why should God want to inspire another version of the story in Samuel Kings? The difference between Samuel Kings um, and Chronicles reflects Chronicles' distinctive context in the Second Temple period. When the faith of the people in Judah is under pressure and when God seems inactive. Kings tells the story of the monarchy in such a way as to show people how they'd done wrong. And that fits the context of the exile when they needed to face this. Chronicles tells the story in such a way as to be encouraging to people, which fits the context after the exile when they need encouragement. In telling the story, rather than trying to be literally accurate, it dresses the figures of history in the costumes of its own day to make the links clear to the people's own day. Maybe sometime in a sermon you've talked about Jesus driving a Harley-Davidson around Galilee. Now, Jesus did not actually do that. Um, but if you'd said in a sermon that Jesus drove his Harley-Davidson around Galilee, you wouldn't actually be falsifying the story. You'd be updating the story. You'd be making it possible for somebody to imagine Jesus in our uh, cultural historical context. Uh, and so that's something that, again, Kings and Chronicles, but also the Gospels do. That is, they don't confine themselves to telling you the story as it actually happened. Precisely because they are the word of God to people, they tell the story in such a way as to update it so that people can uh, imagine it happening in their own context, in their own lifetime, in their own setting. So the way in which Chronicles will describe things going on in the temple um, quite likely doesn't describe things exactly as they would have been in Solomon's day, but describes things in the terms that they would have been in the time of the writer and the readers. Because then they can imagine those stories from the past as ones that impinge upon their own day. It's part of their being contextual. And then fifthly, thus Chronicles doesn't overtly tell its own story. That is, it doesn't tell a story about what, what is happening in the time of the writers and the readers. It retells the old, old story. I put some uh, passages in, uh, in brackets there that illustrate that, but I I'll, uh, I'll talk about them in a minute. I'll skip over those references for a moment, because I'll look at some examples in a moment. It retells the old, old story, um, but it abbreviates it, for instance. So the whole of the story of the northern kingdom disappears. The books of kings tell the story in such a way as to show how Ephraim um, gets the judgment that it deserves in the fall of Jerusalem. And in the preceding chapters, tells you about how things kept going wrong in Ephraim. Uh, thus, how the fall of Ephraim was deserved. What Chronicles does is leave out the story of Ephraim. Once they go off on their own and set up their own show in the north, then they're no longer part of the story. Um, and that's um, part of telling the story in such a way as it relates directly to the people of Judah in its own day. So it abbreviates the story. It leaves out many of the human interest stories. Uh, sometimes people say that it, I mean, it leaves out the story of David and Bathsheba. It's not that it doesn't like the bad stories. Um, it leaves out some of the vivid good stories too. 
um, because that's not where its focus lies, given the uh, emphasis, for instance, on worship that it wants to bring home. Uh, and by leaving some stuff out like that, it can expand its story, uh, again, in, in a bit the way that, that the Gospels can, where, uh, the, where Matthew and Luke, uh, in, as well as including most of Mark, though not all of it, um, expand on the Mark story with material of their own. It portrays David rather more positively than Samuel King's does. As I say, you don't get the David and Bathsheba story. Uh, you, um, you get David as uh, pictured as the person who exercises most responsibility for the building of the temple, even though he doesn't himself do it. Uh, and he's pictured as the, the glorious great figure at that um, climax of the story of Israel in his responsibility for seeing that the temple does get built by his son. It portrays David then rather positively, a bit in the way in which when the New Testament talks about Old Testament characters, it tends to um, uh, glorify them, whitewash them, you could say. Talk about their good side rather than their bad side. Uh, so the way the first Christians kept rewriting the gospel story um, Mark, then Matthew and Luke, then John, according to the usual view, um, takes up the assumption that Chronicles has that an important story needs, deserves repeated retelling. Um, one or two people asked, uh, somebody asked um, about the Chronicles' references to written accounts uh, of extra-biblical sources well, presumably there were such sources. The books of Kings do the same, referring to um, uh, places where, at least in theory, you could go and look if you want to check out the information they provide. But, of course, those, those documents haven't survived, so we, can't, we aren't in a position to do that. Um, nor, uh, in response to somebody else's question, uh, do we get any information from other countries around uh, that... Um, uh, helps us to check whether the chronicle, the chronicle story aligns with their story. Um, it's generally speak, generally the case with the Old Testament, as with the New Testament, that we just don't have contemporary material from elsewhere that we can check the story by. Uh, somebody was puzzled at the fact that I talk about the fall of Jerusalem being in 587, whereas almost everything I've learned so far at Fuller has said 586. Um, there's a, there are various complications about Old Testament dates. Um, uh, did I illustrate it last last week in terms of when Queen Elizabeth came to the throne? No blank looks. Okay, Queen Elizabeth came to the throne on the sixth of February, nineteen fifty-two. Um, that is, that's when her father died. She was enthroned, uh, crowned on June. I've forgotten June. June I've forgotten when. In, anyway, June nineteen fifty-three. Now, when was the first year of her reign? Was it nineteen fifty-two? Was it the 6th of February 1952 to the 5th of February 1953? Was it 1953? Or was it, the, whatever it was, date in June 1953 to the same date of June in 1954? You can make a case for all of those. Uh, and there are equivalent questions raised about the dates of the um, kings in Israel. That is, do you count the first year of a king's reign as uh, the first, the calendar year in which he was, uh, came to the throne, or the first full year he came onto the throne, uh, after, after he came onto the throne, or what? And consequently, in, in accordance with your um, 
answer to those questions, then lots of data in the Old Testament can vary by, by a year. Uh, and so uh, some people talk about the fall of Samaria as 722, some as 721, some about the fall of Jerusalem as 587, 586, whatever. Um, there's a, a further complication with regard to the dates of the kings, that it was the custom for a king to make um, usually one of his sons his successor as co-king while he himself was still alive. Um, because that, presumably because that has some prospect of ensuring a smooth transition uh, when the, uh, the old king does die. But then, but then the, the dates of the young king are counted from the time that he became co-king with his father. So as a consequence, if you add up all the dates of all the kings in the Old Testament, you get more years than you can actually fit in the number of years available, right? Um, and there are various ways of working out, of kind of guessing quite often it is, at what point such and such a king became co-king with his father. And so when you look at dates for kings, you'll find quite a lot of uh, variation. Uh, you'll find in the Dictionary of the Histories uh, some explanation of how that stuff works. Um, uh, and... Uh, the, one of the standard books about the subject is called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings, uh, and it still does stay pretty mysterious, really, because nobody's absolutely sure what to do. So don't worry if you hear people with a one-year difference between dates or with quite a lot more difference between the dates of different kings. That just arises out of different ways of um, working with the calendar. Um, now, let me go on to page 28 which says at the top uh, how an Old Testament history books... That's bad grammar. Sorry about that. Uh, how Old Testament history books get written. Two. Because number one was um, when I was thinking last week about how Ezra and Nehemiah um, got written. Uh, and I suggested, well, it looks as if they got, to get, they, they got put together out of a collection of fragments of separate bits. And the one way in which Old Testament books, historical books got written thus was uh, is called a, a fragmentary theory. That is a theory that there were fragments of various kinds that got put together into a book. Uh, but now we're looking at the relationship between Chronicles and Kings. You can see another way in which Old Testament books got written by there being, or, and New Testament books like the Gospels, by virtue of there being a version of a book and then later on another version which, which um, reworks the first version. Now, let's uh, look at some examples of the way in which um, that works out in Samuel Kings and Chronicles. And the first is one that several people asked about in their postings. Um, that is the story of the census that David takes. Um, and if you can manage, if you've got a hard copy Bible, keep, keep a, a thumb in 2 Samuel 24 and a thumb in 1 Chronicles 21. Or if you've got two Bibles on your screen, do it. Here's 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go count the people of Israel and Judah. That's 2 Samuel 24. 1 Chronicles 21. Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. Excuse me? 2 Samuel 24. The anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. 1 Chronicles 21. Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. Now, one thing to simplify it slightly, uh, the, the Hebrew word satan is a common noun that means an adversary. 
Um, it isn't, it isn't a, a word that's really a name with a capital S like it became in the New Testament. So it would actually be more natural to translate the passage in Chronicles and that an adversary stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people. But still there's obviously a difference over against Samuel where it says uh, Yahweh incited David against the people. Uh, and what you've got going on here is two uh, different theological points being made. Uh, the inclination in Samuel Kings is to assert the sovereignty of God, to say that God is involved. The inclination in Chronicles is to be um, hesitant about attributing to God something that seems um, negative like that um, and to allow for the possibility that God works through a character like Satan or the adversary in the same way as, the book, as in the book of Job. So there are two different theological points being made that in the end um, both need to be part of your theology. Um, Samuel is, uh, the, the two Samuel is jumping one way one Chronicles is jumping the other way. Uh, the second example is the account of Solomon's prayer in the connection with the dedication of the temple, um, which is 1 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Here's the 1 Kings passage. If they sin against you, says Solomon to God, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they come to their senses in the land to which they have been taken captive and repent, and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We've sinned and done wrong, we've acted wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to, pray to you toward their land which you gave to their ancestors, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Now incidentally, you can imagine how people in exile are on tiptoe listening to this account of a prayer that Solomon <coughs> prayed. It's Solomon praying about them, as it were. Solomon goes on. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea. Maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. Grant them compassion in the sight of their captors so that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron smelter. Let your ears be open to the plea of your servant, that is Solomon, and to the plea of your people Israel, listening to them whenever they call to you. For you have separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, just as you promised through Moses your servant when you brought our ancestors out of Egypt, O Lord Yahweh. That's the one king's version of Solomon's prayer. And as I say, you can imagine people in the exile listening to it and wondering if God is prepared to answer it. Um, here's the one chronicles version, um, beginning at one chronicles chapter 6, verse 36 which in the first part um, basically says those same things, but then towards the end goes like this. Now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to prayer from this place. Um, now, in the King's Version, it envisages people praying in the exile towards the temple. In the Chronicles Version, it's envisaging the prayer being prayed in the temple. And it goes on, 
not with reference to Moses and the Exodus, as Solomon does in, Samuel, in 1 Kings, but it goes on, Now rise up, Yahweh God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, Yahweh God, be clothed with salvation. Let your faithful rejoice in your goodness. Yahweh God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for your servant David, who wasn't mentioned in Solomon's prayer. The circumstances of the people um, in Chronicles Day are ones in which they've got the temple, they've returned from exile, they're able to worship there, and, and they know um, that God has, is still committed to fulfilling the promise that he made to David to be loyal to them. Um, and, and so they, and they are praying, therefore, on the basis of theological truths that are particularly significant for them in their context. The account of the prayer, that, of, of the way that Sol, the account of Solomon's prayer uh, in 1 Kings speaks to the people in the context of the exile. The account of the prayer of Solomon in Chronicles speaks to people in the situation after the exile. Uh, as I put on the sheet, in the exile, uh, there in the exile, people can pray toward Jerusalem, repenting, and Yahweh may hear and forgive, and may do so because of the Exodus. In 2 Chronicles, it's that Yahweh dwells in this temple. Yahweh has answered that prayer of Solomon's, actually. Yahweh is in our midst. Yahweh has not forgotten his promise to David. Third example from the end of the story in Kings and the end of the story in Chronicles. Um, in um, the end of Kings, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatel, daughter of Jeremiah of Libnar. He did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, just as Jehoiakim had done. Indeed, Jerusalem and Judah so angered Yahweh that he expelled them from his presence. And that's the last reference to God in 2 Kings. Um, what you then get in, the, in 2 Kings 25, well it begins with the last half verse of 2 Kings 24, Zedekiah repelled against the king of Babylon. And in 2 Kings 25 you simply get an account of what then happened. Of the besieging of the city, um, of the capture of the city, uh, of the flight of the king... Um, of the capture of the king they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah the last thing he saw before they blinded him was the death of his sons they bound him in fetters and, and took him to Babylon then the chapter goes on to describe the burning of the temple and the pillaging of it and the taking of things off to um, Babylon um, and the appointment of uh, a kind of interim administration uh, for the people left behind in Judah. Then there's no theological comment there at all. It's just the facts. It's just a description. And you can also imagine it being written by somebody who's watched all that happen. And when you're close to the events like that, you haven't got theological comments to make. You don't need theolog theological comments. It's just the pain of what happened that you need to express. Uh, but then, in the last paragraph, is the little note of hope 
You know how um, when they do these focus groups with movies and they say the movie's finished too, glim too grimly, you have to add a tiny bit at the end so that people don't walk out of the theatre feeling too glum, right? Otherwise they won't, go to the, they won't tell their friends to go and see the movie at all. Uh, and King's is a bit like that. There's a little paragraph at the end that means it's possible to end the book without feeling as glum as you would otherwise would. In the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim of Judah, in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month, King Evil Merodach of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released King Jehoiakim of Judah from prison in Babylon, spoke kindly to him, gave him a seat above the other seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes. Every day of his life he dined regularly in the king's presence. For his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion every day, as long as he lived. There in Babylon, a quarter of a century later, the king has been released. Maybe God hasn't finished with us. It's a little sign of hope at the end of that terrible story. Here's the Chronicles equivalent. Verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 36 then Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh his God. Just the same as the end of Kings. Though then it then adds, he didn't humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah. He rebelled against, Jeremiah, against Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the, there's a reminder of the way in which Yahweh had sent persistently to the people, prophets, to attempt to win them back. But they've taken no notice. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their youths with a sword in the, in the house of the sanctuary, had no compassion on the young men or the young women. Uh, and in four verses, there's a description of the fall of Jerusalem. A whole chapter in Kings, four verses in Chronicles. Because it's not white-hot history, the thing that just happened now, you see. He took them into exile. Until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had made up for its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Because as if it had never had the Sabbath years during the time up to the exile. So it gets 70 of them all at once. And then in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia in fulfillment of the word of Yahweh spoken by Jeremiah. Yahweh stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and tells people that they can go back. Here's a very different um, account uh, of the uh, end of the community in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and what happened afterwards. Not contradictory at all, but very, very different. An emphasis on the way that the king didn't obey the prophetic word, so people ought to learn that they should. The Yahweh had kept sending prophets, that the leadership had defiled the temple. There's very little detail on the fall of the city. But then there's the declaration that Jeremiah's prophecy had been fulfilled. And that's the hopeful event which ends the books of Chronicles rather than the release of Jehoiakim. Because the, the guy who wrote Kings evidently didn't know about the release of uh, about the, uh, about King Cyrus because it hadn't happened yet. Um, but it's a much better piece of news when it happens than, than um, the release of King Jehoiakim. So Chronicles is able to end with a much more upbeat account of how the exile would come to an end. Um, that Kings is able to end with. Now, in those three, those are three examples. Are not exactly random, um, but there are lots of other examples where you could put, where you can put the story in Samuel Kings and the story in Chronicles alongside each other, and see how Chronicles has rewritten the story uh, in order to bring home the message that needs to be brought home 
to the people living after the exile. So, as I put it at the bottom uh, of that sheet, oh, let me see if there are other things I ought to say about arising out of... No, I think that, that will do. So, uh, Chronicles in the Second Temple period is an alternative history to the king's history from the exile. <coughs> Chronicles and Genesis to Kings as a whole are two versions of Old Testament history. Chronicles reworks kings so that God's story speaks to a new situation. It rewrites and supplements. So that's a different way of a book coming into existence. Um, and when you're studying that, you're doing what is called reduction, criticism. <coughs> reduction is that process of editing or rewriting that seeks to bring home the message of the material you're starting from in a new context. And you discover um, what the nature of that reductional work was by looking at what the author was doing in selecting and omitting and adding and rewriting. You see how in uh, Chronicles, but also it would have been the case in Kings itself, history involves choosing and interpreting, because it's a form of preaching. Telling a story is a form of preaching. Telling the story, writing the history, involves choosing and interpreting. Now, uh, if you think about the process whereby Chronicles came into existence, uh, you can compare some theories about the Pentateuch, how the Pentateuch came into existence. That is, um, the idea that the books from Genesis to Deuteronomy started off as a much, a much briefer account of that whole story and gradually got rewritten and added to. Um, that's a way of understanding how the books from Genesis to Deuteronomy would have come, in, come into existence as we know them. And there's a contrast between the process whereby Ezra and Nehemiah came into existence that I described to you last week, by a, by a process of compilation, compilation, fragmentary theories. Neither of those theories, fragmentary theories, fragmentary theories and um, supplementary theories, uh, people have held those views about the Pentateuch, but neither of them is the most common theory about the Pentateuch. The most common theory about the Pentateuch is a source theory. That is, it's as if the guys who wrote the Pentateuch, as if you, you've got just, you've got, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, suppose you attempt to conflate them into one gospel story, which in fact people have often done. That's the usual view um, about the process whereby the Pentateuch came into existence. And the four, the equivalents to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are some guys who are called J, E, D and P. No more information about them now. You will hear about them ad nauseam if you do the Pentateuch course. But it's, it's a theory about the origin of the Pentateuch uh, which sees it coming, into, it coming into existence by a process analogous to that whereby you conflate the four Gospels into one story. So that's not a fragmentary theory that involves bringing bits together, nor is it um, a supplementary theory, which involves that process of rewriting like Chronicles in relation to Kings. It's a source theory. That is, you've got four parallel sources and you conflate them. Um, it's nearly time for the break. Here's what happens next. Um, in the second half tonight, we're going to be looking at Esther, and you're going to spend the first half hour uh, in groups doing the play reading version out of the book of Esther, 
which is um, on my webpage in the, um, uh, in the, on the fuller site. And you're going to do that in um, paired groups, um, the pairing of the groups that you have um, for the purpose of the posting. So groups A and B are going to go together, groups C and D are going together, and so on. Okay, so far? With me? Right? So what I'm going to now is tell you where the groups are going to go. So when it comes to 10 past 8, don't come here, unless you end up as one of the groups that's going to be here. Go to where I tell you to go. And then it tells you, I think, in the um, <coughs> syllabus. No, it doesn't. Well, I'll tell you now then. Uh, when you get there, uh, allocate the parts in the play uh, to each other. Agree who's going to play which part. And then simply do the play reading. Um, and then talk for a few minutes afterwards. Have a moment to do quiet. Then talk for a few minutes about what struck you about that. Um, and at 20 to 9, come back here so we're ready to restart for the class at 8.45. Okay? So here's where the groups are going to go. If you've forgotten, if you didn't discover what your letter is, come and ask me and I will tell you. But groups A and B um, and groups C and D go to Peyton 100, which is the classroom at the top of the three steps that leads up into the garth. Groups A, A, B together, and C, D together at either end of that uh, classroom. Groups E and F and G and H go to the catalyst and find two places at one end of the catalyst or other. If anybody tells you you shouldn't be there, hit them, right? <laughs> Remind them you're reading Esther. Um, so that's E, F and G, H. Uh, groups I, J are going to come to my office. Woo! But I won't be there. It's in the middle of the corridor downstairs here. So at 10 past 8, I'll be there to let you in. That's IJ. KL come to that end of this room. And MN come to this end um, of this room. You got it? Okay. Go away. If you don't know what your group is, come and, come and see now. Uh, what's your name? D. So you're in 100. Peter Camp. I add little a. That is uh, H. So that's uh, this catalyst ones. Um, that's one of the ones. That's one of the ones in the catalyst. Okay. Okay. That's right. Yeah. After you've done the play reading. Yeah. Can you see it? Yeah. Oh. Oh. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah. Because uh, I printed this out probably before you were in. In yeah. that case, in that case, you come come back here and join with N. I think that might. Uh, yeah. Just don't go to that. No, come back here at at ten past okay. and join with one of the groups in here. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And, uh, go ahead. I'll ask you go. another question. Uh, Metcalf. Uh, your E, which is one of the ones in the catalyst. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Do you pay?
You see, oh, there it is. Uh, the old K. So that's um, KLM. One of the ones back here. All right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Group D, group D going. Uh, the uh, what, uh, Payton 100. Payton 100. Yeah. I'm in A. Okay, you're in Payton 100. Yeah. Group B. B, you're in Payton 100. Payton 100. Yeah. Quick um, question. I am still trying to figure out this week, just with my work schedule, if I'm going to be able to keep up 